Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to introduce our guest. Okay, his name is Pat Harrodin from Gallagher Benefits. Uh, good morning, Pat. Morning, Mike. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Pat is a regular visitor here on McNamara on Money, and uh, basically, uh, I, I kind of know the material, but I, I couldn't think of a sexy or intelligent title for the show. So I'm going to let you make up a title for the show, kind of introduce it, and get to our guest slash co-worker of yours, and we'll kind of figure this all out as we go. Okay. Yes. No, thank you, Mike. And thank um, you. So as, uh, as our listeners know, when I'm on with Mike uh, or Alyssa or Kirk, um, I usually talk about uh, employee benefits topics. I think our last show, we talked all about the paid family leave, the Mass Paid Family Leave uh, Act, which we have some updates on that for later. Um, but uh, I recently um, did a, a webinar with a colleague of mine, uh, Jill Goldstone, who's um, actually in our Pennsylvania office. She's actually physically in Massachusetts, Mike, but did not want to make the trip down to our spacious studio. I'll try to take that not too too badly. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, but Jill, I'll have her introduce herself in a minute. Jill is uh, has uh, is very passionate about a, an issue that affects not only our employer clients but also their employees and their families. And I thought, you know, given the time of year, good time, good topic. Um, you know, not an uplifting topic, but a real one. And it's the uh, opioid epidemic, okay. Mike. So yeah. obviously, on the the South Shore, physically where we 
DR and even I'm sure in the Merrimack Valley, you know, it's been an issue for us, um, you know, for a number of years. And Jill has taken a particular interest in helping our clients, uh, the employer clients sort of deal with it. And one of the things that was enlightening to me, which I want Jill to talk about in a bit, is um, how it really impacts uh, employers and work, which is you don't really think about it until you see some of the stats that she has, so it's powerful. So uh, I believe she's on the phone, but good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Great. Say hello to Mike McNamara. Mike, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. <laughs> nice to meet you remotely. Sorry you couldn't and, be here, but... Oh, it, it, next, <laughs> next time I will make the trip now that I understand what uh, luxury accommodations there are available. <laughs> by the way, she's got a great radio voice. This is going to work yes. fine. Have you done this yes, before I on have, the radio, by the way, Jill, or, or TV? You, you are my first radio experience. Whoa! Yeah. Well, i got to tell you, this is going to go just fine. I can tell yeah, already. She, she has a great voice for radio, <laughs> and Mike and I have great faces <laughs> for radio, of course. Um, but Jill, I'm um, just uh, as we sort of um, you know break up our, our morning here, um, just take a minute um, because I think people just want to understand you. If you can just introduce sure. um, yourself, uh, you know, briefly, and then if you can go into before I start sort of peppering you with some questions, um, talk about sort of you yourself and then how you got interested in this topic because I believe it's a fascinating topic and not a lot of people are talking about it on the employer side. Yeah, Pat, sure. By the way, that- Pat, uh, Jill, I was going to ask Pat to say all that. I don't need to be here, Pat. I can, <laughs> I can just take off for the next two hours. You're, you're, no, you need to be is, here. This is very good. Okay, no, so, Sorry to interrupt, but I couldn't help with this. <laughs> Pat, you're a polished professional here. Been doing this a while. No like question you, like about you, Mike. it. All right, mm-hmm. I'll be quiet now. Okay. All right, go ahead, Jill. So introduce yourself and, and talk yeah, a little bit about so, uh, so, how you got involved. Yeah, so, so my name is Jill Goldstone, and I've been um, in the benefits field for 30 years, and um, it, it's really kind of interesting. I just... Um, this issue just kind of caught my attention because I, my dad grew up in a family of addiction and heroin addiction. And um, when I heard about all the people that were dying as a result of opioids, it kind of just got under my skin. And the reason I kind of pushed forward to get a better understanding of how we could help people um, was I found that non, found out that non-addictive alternatives were available for most situations. Just even acetaminophen and ibuprofen have been proven to be more effective or just as effective for most conditions. And there is just this excess of opioids being prescribed and people um, are getting addicted and dependent in just a few days on these medications. And I recognized that um, with the pills that were fueling the epidemic coming through our health plans, that there was more that we could do as consultants in helping our clients um, and our individuals um, protect themselves and to get the help that they need. It's, It's an issue that I've kind of spent the past three years researching and developing strategies to um, work with employers to have a proactive, compassionate um, approach to opioids in the workplace, because I think that you know, so many of us spend so many hours a day um, at work, and we get our benefits and all these resources through the employers that it's really a fantastic gateway for information um, and access. 
Jill, without trying to sound like an uneducated slug, could you maybe uh, kind of a broad definition of opioids and some names or just connections so maybe people could have more of a, 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 an idea? Because I don't. I'll express my ignorance, like, which yeah, I guess is so, a good thing. I'm not sure. Yeah, so you know, opioids are generally known as, as, as pain medications. And people um, get prescribed opioids. Typically, um, it could be like after a surgery, after a wisdom teeth removal or chronic pain. Some of the most commonly prescribed opioids are oxycodone and hydrocodone. And um, how this kind of um, came about is that um, doctors um, and even the government identified pain as a fifth vital sign. And there was information from the pharmaceutical companies out there that they were peddling that opioids were really not addictive. And so that started um, this, 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 this horrible epidemic in that there was just this increase, dramatic increase in prescribing of opioids, not with the understanding that people can become addicted to these medications at the level that they could. So people are being prescribed it for many different reasons. Um, just the other day, my mother um, fell and she had a couple of stitches right under her eye and she came out of the emergency room with, with, with the script opioids. And okay. um, what's frustrating to me is that there's other things that, that could have been done. As, a, as opposed to opioids. So, so it sounds like there's a larger stage going on here with battles between governments and pharmaceuticals, but we'll leave that alone for, for now. Is that, I mean, <laughs> if that's a problem, it sounds like it should be relatively easy to fix, but <laughs> not, huh? they're laughing at me, folks. Mm. Okay. No, I'm not, I'm not laughing. It's just, I wish it were easy to fix. I wish there was a, a magic wand, and I think that you know, there's a lot of work that's being done. I mean, I know there's a, there's a task force in Western Massachusetts that that's bringing together, um, you know, the, 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 the criminal justice system, the, the pharmaceuticals, the, the doctors, um, everybody who's got an interest in this to help bring people together to really address the problem. Um, but it's not easily solved to, to, to your point. Mm, okay. And, and Jill, help our uh, listeners um, understand sort of how big or, or some stats yeah. on the problem, like how many people are, are affected yeah. by this and, and how does it yeah. sort of filter down to us? It's, it's, really, it's, it's really upsetting. I, I heard the stat that one in every two people, excuse me, knows somebody who's been impacted um, by this epidemic wow. in the country. Wow. And it is a U.S. problem. The U.S. takes 80% of the world's opioids. So this problem is, is really here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We have uh, 130 people dying every day um, of an opioid-related overdose death. Um, it's ravishing our communities. Um, drug overdose is now the leading cause of accidental death in the United States. And only one in 10 people are getting treatment. And there's a, there's a stigma issue, and there's an access issue, and there's a stigma issue. But on a local basis, um, Senator um, Ed Markey called this the most dev devastating public health crisis facing our country. Um, in western Massachusetts, unfortunately, the crisis is continuing to grow. Um, so even though we're taking steps, there are certain pockets in the country that... Um, it's still a challenge. And um, some of the things that are fueling, even on a local level, the challenge around this is an increase in fentanyl, which is um, a drug that's 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine, and it's being cut into pills on the black market. 
um, there's a still um, a large number of doctors prescribing opioids. In Hampton and Berkshire counties, they're the number two and number three counties for opioid prescribing in the state. There's also a lack of access to treatment. Um, some people have to spend hours to get to a clinic um, to get methadone or one of the medication treatments that treats opioids. Um, there's a stigma issue that I mentioned um, among people that have opioids, and there's even a stigma issue um, among physicians as well as in the understanding of if opioid use disorder is treatable. Um, and the result, <clears throat> excuse me, is that there's parents who are dying or being unable to take care of their children. And this is, this is a wild coincidence, but I'm in Massachusetts right now. I'm not in Western Mass, but in the suburb of Boston, visiting a very dear friend for the weekend. And my, my girlfriend, who I'm visiting, is fostering a child whose um, parents are addicts, unfortunately. Whoa. And she's um, taking care of five children, most of them born with neonatal abstinence system syndrome, which is a harp they're, they're being born dependent on the drugs. And they need people like her and the foster system to, to take care of these kids. There's been a 20% increase in foster care in this community um, over the past five years. So, you know, there's a lot of people um, that are coming together to solve the problem to to your point jim my people like my friend jenna um it's it's really incredible that that they've found a way to help support this and i think it's great when people kind of think outside the box to understand how they could you know help alleviate other people's pains and and, and support um getting people to help so so, go ahead, Mike. so jill to so do doctors disagree that this is a habit forming and and, and no i think yeah, that's a really good question. I think people now understand that it's habit-forming. Um, but unfortunately, doctors are continuing to write these scripts, and I believe it's because that when people come to them, um, you know, as Americans, you know, we, we want five different kinds of ketchup, right? And, 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 you know, we want everything our way, and we don't want to feel any pain. And so opioids really dull that pain, at least initially. And so when people take an opioid, they, they, get, they get this feeling of high, they never feel the pain anymore, um, but they become dependent. So I think, so or some become dependent. And so I think doctors feel like um, their patients expect them to write the scripts. And so even though there, there's limiting now of the number of pills being prescribed, which is fantastic, um, somebody can come become disabled in, in only five days. And for some individuals, even three days. So it's really important that we start to have conversations with our physicians um, about opioids and about alternatives to opioids. Because there are things that you can take or do instead of taking opioids that would not lead to not lead to dependence or addiction. And, and Jill, are most of the like when people get addicted through legitimate prescriptions, this isn't like a black market yeah, selling pills on the street. How does it sort of start? Where does it yeah, come from? So that's a really great question. So a few different ways. Um, so um, for some people, they take pills as prescribed 
by their doctor and they become dependent, which is really tragic because you go to your doctor and you think that they're going to take care of you and they have all good intentions and um, somebody can become dependent from that. Um, For others, um, it might start with borrowing pills from a friend or family member. So, you know, back in the old days when I, you know, when I gave birth many years ago, I got a pill, a bottle of pills. It was like a 30-day supply of opioids. Gosh, I did not need a 30-day supply. But you know what? Those pills, when I when I started doing research on this and understanding the cause um, of people becoming addicted, I learned that excess pills left in a medicine cabinet are getting in the wrong hands. And 80% of first-time heroin users started with prescription opioids, most of the time not prescribed for them, but given to them by a friend or family member. So one step that all of us can take is disposing of excess medication because they can get into the wrong hands. And especially if you have kids at home, um, my brother actually was selling his house and somebody came through to look at the house and stole all his pills. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so it starts with a couple of different ways. It could start with, you know, pills, as I mentioned, prescribed. Um, it could start with, um, uh, it's called diversion, which is, you know, they're getting uh, pills that were not meant for them. Yeah. Um, or it could start with somebody just going to the street. Now, one thing uh, that's happened um, that you may have read about is that with the steps that some of the pharmacy companies have taken um, and the states have taken, there's been... Um, there's been some people have gotten cut off from their opioids and so when people get cut off from their <laughs> prescription opioids they may end up going to the black market and buying it on the street and the dangerous thing is that when you buy it on the street um, that fentanyl as I mentioned before is being cut into some of these pills so you don't know what what wow. what you're getting and um, there's a huge surge of people dying as it relates to fentanyl um, Opioids. Jill, what was what was the entity that decided to limit the number of pills? So, so from whence did mm-hmm. that come? Well, the, um, that's a really good question. So, um, the the CDC, um, the Centers for Disease Control. I'm trying not to use your acronyms as, as Th- you mentioned in you. your startup. <laughs> thank Jim. you. Already. <laughs> the CDC made recommendations quite a few years ago. I don't know what year it was. Um, as to what is the most appropriate use of opioids, um, and they basically started by, you know, um, limiting more habit-forming pills, um, having prior authorizations, um, you know, limiting number of pills, not getting uh, refills automatically, things of that nature. And so they set aside the recommendations. And then states across the country, some of them have taken on these and some of them haven't. But in addition, um, um, most of us, or many of us, are covered through um, employer-sponsored health plans. And the pharmaceutical, um, the, the, they're called uh, PBMs, um, the pharmaceutical benefit managers that administer those plants have also put limitations on the pills. So they're coming from a a number of different areas, um, as well as our health systems. Some health systems, a few, have started to actually go opioid-free and or severely limiting opioids, which is absolutely fantastic. So there's some models (laughs) that are happening across the country in in some of the prestigious learning institutions uh, to look at how we can manage this differently. Hmm. Uh, Jill, I just had a thought here, and we, we have a couple minutes for this.
this, but we're coming up on a break. But um, I, I, what I think I'd like to do is uh, throw out the, uh, we'd like to get some phone calls here uh, from, from listeners. And I'm thinking perhaps there are some physicians listening who would like to weigh in on this and or perhaps there are some law enforcement uh, folks <laughs> yes. who would like to kind of weigh on on this just from a discussion point of view. And uh, mm-hmm. what, what, what I'll do now is, folks, uh, this is a little confusing, but let me try to deconfuse. Uh, right now we're broadcasting live this morning from the south shore of Boston on WATD 95.9 FM in Marshfield. If you have questions uh, for us uh, and our guests, our phone number here is 781-837-4900. If you're listening to us from the Merrimack Valley on WCAP 980 AM in Lowell this morning, you can email us your questions at Strangely enough, questions, questions. at com, uh, And uh, so, folks, uh, th- th- those are the ways that you can get a hold of us uh, for this broadcast. But, you know, <clears throat> again, we're coming up to a break pretty quickly here. But after the break, this, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a simple guy. Uh, you know, um, I, I advise folks about their finances for a living. And the, the, the definition of a client is someone who takes the advice of another. And uh, when somebody walks into my office and tells me they want to do this for the investments, that they're not a client and that's not going to work out very well. So it's really kind of hard for me to imagine me walking into my doctor's office and saying, I want this pill, that pill, or the other pill. I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. I, maybe I'm missing something, but I just, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll leave that alone. Jill, uh, we've got about a minute and a half before we have to take a break. Where would you like to go from here? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I think that if everybody walked away with a, a few things from this call, yep. um, I think that there are certain things that individuals can do um, within their home, own home um, to proactively, you know, address this. Um, one is about talking to your doctor, and <clears throat> there's doctors out there that are doing fantastic work, right? So, so we want to partner with them. Um, some of the key questions to ask your doctor is, am I being prescribed an opioid? Um, is there a non-addictive alternative? And if not, is it possible to do this on a really short-term basis? Um, we also want to warn our children that taking um, a drug that wasn't prescribed for them is dangerous. Um, it's as dangerous as illegal drugs. Um, we want to secure our painkillers to make sure that they're not getting into the wrong hands, that they're in a locked drawer. Um, and um, we want to just bring this out into the open. We want to address the stigma. We want people to understand that this is a disease and not a moral failing, and we need to support these people to get better because recovery is possible. Wow. Uh, J- Jill, uh, what we're going to do now is take a break, and, and hopefully we'll get a little dialogue going here after the break. So don't go away, don't Jill. Go away. We need you, okay? <laughs> All righty. We're back. My name's Mike McNamara. This is McNamara on Money. My uh, guest this morning, I should say my co-host this morning, is <sighs> Pat Harridan from Gallagher Benefits. Uh, we like to talk about employee stuff here on our show once in a while. Uh, and his uh, cohort, a uh, partner in uh, business, uh, is a lady by the name of Jill Goldstone, who I hope is still with us. Are you there, Jill? I am here. Alrighty, And uh, we're talking about uh, opioids, addiction, uh, and 
and we promise we'll relate this to the workplace and money. Well, it's obviously related to money in, in very, many, very many uh, way, shapes, and fashions here. Uh, mm-hmm. So a couple, couple things. Uh, so folks, uh, as you're listening here, we'd sure like to get some callers on this subject. And uh, given the nature of it, I'm, there may be a, a physician or two or a law enforcement officer or two. We don't want to get into big politics, but we want to kind of, you know, talk <laughs> a, a constructive story here so that maybe our listeners can be kind of sensitized to this mm-hmm. whole thing. So right right now, we're broadcasting live this morning uh, from our South Shore studios uh, in WATD in Marshfield, 95.9 FM. If you have questions uh, on the South Shore, give us a call at 781-837-4900. If you're listening to us from the Merrimack Valley on WCAP 980 AM in Lowell, you can email us your questions at questions at McNamaraOnMoney.com. Okay, so we're going to continue our dialogue, but, uh, but the short story is that uh, pain addiction seems to be a significant problem for people and employers and employees are people and uh, that's kind of why we're talking about this this morning. Pat, any other yes, comments? Yes, no, I just, uh, it's funny Jill, um, I was just talking to Mike during the break and I explained to him how it impacts employers and that's where he sort of had his aha moment oh, holy, about... Oh, it was more than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, before, we, before we talk about sort of how it impacts the employers and then... Um, you know, how, how we sort of identify that and help them. Uh, you said the words a few times, Jill, and I just want to make sure people uh, understand this because this was another sort of uh, eye-opener for me. Can you just touch on quickly um, the differences between addiction and dependency? Because I think that's Oh, sort I of didn't important. even know that was a difference. Sorry about that. Yeah. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and, and thanks for bringing that up, Pat, because I think, like, how we talk about it is really important. I mentioned before that this is a disease, um, and the words that we use really matter um, because we want to be compassionate and understanding to help the people that need help, you know, you know, get the help that they need. So dependency starts when you're taking a pill and you um, continue to take it, but when you stop taking it, you feel really sick and your body reacts and you have a reaction that might feel like the the flu 10 times over. Uh, And then people will continue taking the pills, even though it's not for the reason that they initially took it for their pain, um, but because when they stop taking it, they feel really awful. And there's people that may be dependent on opioids and working in our workplaces. And we may not even really be aware of it. Um, Addiction is a little bit different. And addiction changes um, the brain. And so when people become um, addicted, they, uh, it's kind of all that they can think about. And they are willing to put themselves, their families, their jobs at risk to get the next fix. And so it is different, um, but the the important thing is is that um, dependency and addiction can both be treated with evidence-based medicine, um, and people can recover from both of those conditions, and they're treated the same way. Um, There's medication treatment out there, methadone, buprenorphine, that can help people through um, the detox um, and sustain recovery and make sure that they don't have any of these overdose situations that we're hearing so much about. Wow. Um, and then, Jill, so in our world, so we, mm-hmm. you know, our clients are employers, but we also yeah. have the, the employees. So what are the things or how do you work or speak to employers sure. about how, you know, how do we uncover if they have 
an issue with opioids and then you know what are the things that we can do to to help them and then if you can yeah. if you've got them if some of the stats we have about you know the labor market and and how ma- how many people are impacted are, are fascinating if you want to quote some of those as well yeah well that's that's a, that's, a, that's a lot for me to talk about so hopefully uh, i'll uh, i'll cover oh yeah, Mike, it all. mike's ready he's so, writing down down we've got plenty of time <laughs> So this is this is really fascinating. There's actually a connection between the unemployment rate and opioid abuse. They found in areas with higher prescription rates where Western Massachusetts is one of them, that there's more people that are dropping out of the labor force. Um, so it's impacting the, the available labeled labor to work. So it's, it's, it's affecting employers' ability to attract and retain clients because we know that we're in a, we're in a, we're in a tight labor market right now. Um, but employers um, historically um, hadn't really noticed the impacts, and that's really shifted just over the past two years where there's a lot of information out there. There's people like me um, and others and Pat who are starting to talk about this. And just to, to rattle off a few stats, which I think is, is really pretty fascinating. So somebody who is struggling with um, OUD or opioid use disorder um, is costing their employer's health plan an additional ten to twenty thousand dollars a year. So they're costing two to three times what a typical employee's would be. Um, on average, they miss an additional seventeen days a year. They're absent. They're in the ER. They can't get out of bed. Whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, their workers' compensation claims are four times higher if a short-acting opioid is prescribed, and ten times higher if a long-acting opioid is is prescribed. Um, it's been in, estimated that they have a 17% reduction in productivity. Um, obviously, this is impacting the safety of the work site. So if you have somebody out there that is struggling with um, dependency or addiction and operating heavily, heavy machinery, they're not only putting themselves at risk, but they're putting others at risk and the workplace. And there's been a number of lawsuits um, across the country, um, uh, mostly on the workers' comp side, workers' comp side of the fence, where an initial script for opioid led to an addiction and ultimately led to the, a death, and the survivors are now um, are, are suing the employer successfully. Wow! So there's that liability as well. Now, on you know, I, 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 I I'm. I'm, ex- I'm excited to share with you that um, there's a way to approach this in a very positive manner. And there was a study by the National Safety Council. They did it um, in concert with the University of Chicago. And they looked at all the costs uh, associated with somebody who is going through one of these um, you know, disease states. And they found that by an employer proactively addressing this in the workplace, giving the employee a second chance. So if somebody comes forward and says, I have a problem, or they test positive um, for um, an inappropriate substance, um, that the employer will give them a a second chance to come back to work. And what they found is that for each employee that comes back to work post-treatment, the employer saves about $3,200 per year. So, you know, I know many employers um, make decisions based upon the bottom line. I can't help them. We're all, you know, we're all, we all need to be profitable to, re- to, you know, do our thing, <laughs> do our thing. And to, for our sustainability, of course, and to, to, to feed all the employees and families 
um, within our works. But there is actually a positive way. I mean, there, it's just amazing. And, and, and the neat thing is that, um, to your point, Pat Gallagher, um, we, we've gotten behind this. And I'm really excited. Gallagher um, has won the award. It's called the Ethisphere Award for America's, one of America's most ethical companies. And I think that this is an ethical issue. Um, so they've really gotten behind this. And what we've done is we've created um, a whole um, uh, portfolio of things that employers can do proactively in the work site to um, address opioid use disorder and substance abuse more generally so that people know that their employer cares about them, that people have, you know, access to quality treatment, that they can come forward and admit that they have a problem um, and get the help that they need. And so there's a lot of different things that, that, that we can do um, um, for our clients, you know, depending upon um, what their culture is, what their policies are, um, and what their goals are. But we're starting to work with employers in addressing this proactively in the work site. And in addition to helping their bottom line, it really positions them as an employer that really cares about their employees. And in this market where it's really hard to attract and retain talent, I think that this is a huge feather in their cap. And Jill, how would we know, like, so if I'm an employer out there and, and, and our clients are out there, we can make assumptions based on the stats, but how yeah. would we know that an employer has a problem, uh, you know, without obviously, you know, interviewing all their employees. Are there things that we can do as consultants to yeah. understand sort of their data to see if there's a way we can at least start to uncover if there's an yeah. issue? So that, that, that's an excellent question. So um, with, so yeah, the, Anybody can research what, what the stats are, um, looking you know regionally what the stats are and, and nationally and, and by industry. So um, industries that have a higher blue collar content typically have higher opioid use and more people that might have a dependency um, issue. Um, for our clients that are larger, we can get data through their pharmacy benefit management company to find out what percentage of people are taking opioids, um, are they employees, spouses, children, um, how many people are taking opioid plus another drug which creates like a dangerous cocktail where somebody might be at a higher risk for opioids. So if you take an opioid plus a benzodiazepine, a muscle relaxer, or multiple opioids, um, you are at higher risk um, for, for overdose. Um, we can also look at how many people might be taking the medication treatment drugs I talked about. And that's actually a positive sign. That means that people are going out and getting the help that they need. Um, but we know that you know, only one in 10 people are getting evidence-based treatment. So if you've got, you know, I looked at a group just last week, they had 10 people on the plan that were that were in treatment in a four-month window. Um, we're looking at just four months of data. So to me, that means that there's another 54 people out there that aren't getting help. Um, and with an employer having a proactive message around getting help and support, um, they might be more likely to come forward and get the help that they need. Um, now, I've met with employers that are smaller employers that don't get their data. 
Um, but some of them are aware of what's going on, and, 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 and data is only one piece of the puzzle because there's data that comes through the health plan. Some people are getting their um, drugs through work, the workers' comp plan, um, and there's people who you know might be getting pills on the street or pills that have been diverted through friends and family members. Um, but data is a good ple- place to start if you have access to it. Yeah, if you're a small employer with 10, 15, 20, 30 people, it probably not an issue until you notice it. I mean, you know, a couple days for sickness or, you know, unproductive or something kind of a little wonky, but eventually, I guess, people would recognize that in an employer, but lots of times it would just fly below the radar and you'd never think about it. Is, is that How would that work? I mean, yeah, what, what, so, can you help the small employers, I guess, is the question here. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think that there, there, you know, there are some things that, that, that everybody can do, and one is, is, is really just having a compassionate approach um, leveraging resources available through your health plan. Um, and if you have an employee assistance program, they're a fantastic partner to help support your members and have resources to educate people um, around access to care, um, prevention. Um, some of the other things that I really like, um, the National Safety Council has a fantastic website that has some employer resources on it. Um, one of my favorite things is that the National Safety Council has these stickers, they call them opioid warn me. It says, and, and they're little stickers that you put on your um, health plan ID card. And what it does is it prompts the conversation with the physicians um, you know, that you know, if, if there's other alternatives, I prefer not to take opioids because I have a, a history of you know, addiction um, or I'm just, I have anxiety about taking this um, or ever, whatever it might be. Um, but that's something neat. Um, publicizing drug take back days. Um, there's they, the the national the DEA um, teams up, teams up with a number of other um, government um, entities, and they do it twice a year, where they really highlight um, how to dispose of excess medication so it doesn't get into the wrong hands. Um, but you can there's a website um, that you can actually search your zip code and bring your your pills usually to um, police stations. Um, many large pharmaceutical chains allow you to do that as well. Um, so I think by taking steps and by having conversations, by you know even bringing people on site to talk about substance abuse and talking about um, the risks of, of, of taking opioids um, and how to treat um, opioid use disorder, um, that it sends a message to your employees that, that you care about them and that you want them to get better. So I think for especially smaller employers, there are some simple things that they can do within their workplace to show um, their tolerance, their acceptance, and their support. And Jill, if so, you know, Mike's question was around the small employers who may not have access to data or have the flexibility to, you know, to make, uh, you know, different types of changes to their plans. What can larger employers do? Um, you know, what are the things they can do, I guess, from a plan design, from an education? You mentioned, obviously, the supportive culture. But what, what are the sort of tangible things that the employer can do to, they're not going to get rid of the, the issue, but can they limit their exposure to it by making some tweaks to their plan or something like that? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, so there's a number of things that they can do. You know, prevention is really important. I talked about that. I talked about, you know, uh, the, the CDC guidelines. So we want to do that. Um, we want to make sure our workplaces are safe. Um, so, you know, the best way to prevent, um, you know, opioid use disorder is to make sure that there's not accidents in the workplace. So updating your, your safety policy, um, making sure that people have access to quality treatment is really important and highlighting that. I mean, many employees Employers um, are offering, you know, telebehavioral health, um, you know, inpatient, outpatient, peer support programs, and making sure that people understand what their health plans um, are, what's included in the health plans, as well as the medication treatment drugs, methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. We want to make sure they have access to it. Um, some workplaces also are now starting to um, have Narcan on site, which is the um, the opioid overdose reversal drug that you see the police and fire carrying around with them. So 5% of employers are now having them um, at work site, kind of like an AED kit would be on the wall. Um, we also want to make sure that, you know, many people that um, uh, abuse um, opioids, you know, it, it, uh, don't necessarily do that because they're in pain, but they do it for other reasons to 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 feel good, to, to get high because of, you know, emotional issues, um, sleep issues. And these are a lot, a lot of these things are related to stress. So having a workplace where stress um, is, is, is at a very high stress level can, can impact um, the work. And so we want to help people manage their stress um, and make sure that they have the tools to be resilient in, in the face of that. Um, so there's a lot um, in, in messaging and resources that we can offer um, in the workplace. And then the, the last piece of it um, is a really around um, education and prevention. And one thing that Gallagher's done is we actually created um, a, a fantastic communications and education toolkit called Regain, and we're rolling it out with employers, and it helps people understand the risks of opioids, how to dispose of excess opioids, how to talk to your doctor, and then it directs people to um, treatment um, providers through their employee assistance program and helping them to navigate. And one thing I didn't mention also is um, having a supportive workplace. Um, we want to make sure that the policies that employers have, um, a second chance policy, um, leave policies, flexible return to work policies are really important, um, as well as defining transitional jobs, because if you have somebody in a safety-sensitive position and they're coming back to work, they're not going to be able to likely go back into the job that they had before. So having some transitional jobs that they can go to to get them back to work as soon as possible um, is really key in a successful um, return to work. So those are just some of the things that the ways that employers can look at in addition to plan design. Um, as, as, as we talked about before, um, there's alternatives that have been proven to be just as effective at managing pain without the addiction for most situations. Acupuncture, chiropractic, um, OTPT, uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, medical massage have all been proven to be just as effective and in some cases more effective at managing pain than opioids. And I'm not saying that's right for every single situation. There's some people that need their pills 
and we don't want to have a stigma against those people that need the pills as well, right? We don't want to make them bad for needing the pills. Thank God that they have the, the pills that they're in terrible chronic pain. But for many others, um, there's alternatives. So by making um, these services more accessible to employees, whether it's covering acupuncture where you hadn't covered before, or expanding the number of chiropractic visits or lowering the co-pays on some of these things and um, on the medication treatment drugs, making them available at the lowest copay on your health plan um, are also things that employers can do. And it's, it's helping your employees and it's also sending the message that, that you really care. And, and Jill, um, one of the things that you mentioned, I think the biggest um, sort of opportunity that the larger employer has is exactly what you said, making alternatives more attractive. For example, mm -hmm. you know, even though I found it interesting too that some of the opioids are aren't even you know expensive. It's not like they're very ex they're cheap, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like they're yeah. you know people yeah. are paying a lot. So so sometimes it sounds counterintuitive when we're sitting across from the CEO or the CFO saying, hey, if you make chiropractic free, meaning you know no copay, or you know have a chiropractic network or acupuncture or you know, take those limits off your therapies. As we know, most, you know, physical therapies have either visit or condition or calendar year limits. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, their heads explode and they say, hey, how can that save me money? But then we, we have to show them that, you know, those people who would be normally taking the opioids are really, you know, will be accessing this and all those other costs that you mentioned, hard cost on the claims, but soft cost on the productivity um, really are helpful. So I think that's where we, not only to your point, because I think we do a great job educating employees, we have to really educate the employers about about this issue because not a lot of people, I mean, other than, as I was mentioning to Mike on the way in, I just started learning about it, you know, through <coughs> through doing it, you know, with you and, and Gallagher and some for some of our clients. Um, you know, people don't realize it's an issue until it's an issue or, you know, the worst case is that it happens in their family or to them. So I think that's, yep. that's where the opportunity lies for, for the employer, for our clients is to, is to help their employees. So that's where I think we can do it. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, Jill, without trying to sound insightful. So is, <laughs> does the American Medical Association have a position on this or do they agree or disagree or, or the, I mean, it seems like it, it, it's easier to fix it from the top of the education down to the physicians, but is there anything going on there that's positive, I guess? Yeah, that, <laughs> it, it, that's a really good question. There's, a, there's, a, there's so much that's going on on a, on a local, on a state and on a national basis. Um, the AMA has been involved. I think the different subspecialties are now putting out um, um, opioid guidelines for different, um, especially post-surgical. So, you know, every surgery is, is different if you have a knee or a hip or whatever it might be. Some of them can be done really with limiting opioids and some of them need more. And many doctors, they haven't just been trained in this, so it's not to their fault, but you know, they don't know exactly what the, the appropriate um, amounts of opioids are um, needed for certain surgeries. So I know work is being done. So, um, so they're working on it, basically, oh, trying to make it better. Absolutely. Yeah, good, good. And okay. One, one other thing that I think is, is really cutting edge that's happening, um, and I believe it's happening in Massachusetts, there's an organization out there called Shatterproof, 
Um, and anybody wants to follow them, I think they're fantastic. And they're doing fantastic work with, with, with policy. Um, and they developed, um, they're piloting um, a quality rating system in five states right now um, that they're looking at, because there's, there's, there's some substance abuse providers that are fantastic, and then there's, there's, there's quite a few of them that, that are, you know, they, they call them these destination providers, the, the, the palm, palm tree hubs that may not have the quality rigor. And so, you know, you don't want to send one of your loved ones to a, a substandard provider where they're not going to get the help they need and they're going to rebound. So I think the quality rating initiative is really, really important. Hopefully that's going to expand on a national level. And Jill, uh, last last question for me, and then Mike will ask you a question. But thank you uh, for for spending the the first hour with us. But um, for me, what do you think is like if if an employer says to us, or or if, you know they they go back and look at their employees and say, hey, what's the one thing that I can do if they can only do one thing, whether it's resources or cost, what should be the one thing that they do uh, as an employer or, you know, as an employee, I guess, too, um, that they can do um, to help with this uh, issue? I think humanizing it. And I think that we need to understand that our words matter, that when we talk about somebody who's an addict or somebody who's now clean, um, it has a negative connotation. We need to treat this as a disease and talk about it as a disease and treat people who have um, opioid use disorder just like somebody who's a diabetic and they need their medication to survive. Um, they need the treatment. They need the therapies. You know, we need to treat people with respect and dignity and give them hope. One thing that I would encourage employers to do is to consider hiring people who are in recovery, who are, you know, living um, a productive life and give them an, a second chance. Um, so I think addressing the stigma um, and, and humanizing this is, is, is how we as a, as a nation are going to get better by bringing these people out from isolation and giving them hope and, and support. Great. Mike, you have a final thought or Whoa, question? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 Jill, could you, could you kind of describe what kind of work you do in, in your, while you're in the trenches with this? I'm just kind of curious. I'm trying to picture what your, what your work week looks well, like. Yeah, what do you spend your yeah, days on, yeah. Mike wants to know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do I spend? I, I, I call it Pat and say, hey, Pat, <laughs> we've got another group we can go after. <laughs> yeah. um, so I actually am kind of in a unique position. Gallagher is a very large company with about 35,000 employees. And um, through just my passion around this, I've become um, a subject matter expert. So I work directly with clients on this and I work um, across the country um, with other consultants like Pat in all different geographies. And so I, I spend my time doing two things primarily. Um, it's educating people about what they can be doing and also meeting directly with clients one-on-one -on -one and helping to build them a plan um, around a proactive um, path forward. Wow, so you got your own little niche in the world that you made yourself and you're an expert. I love it. What a country America, huh? Holy cow. Hey, by the way, you've been terrific. We very much appreciate spending some time with you here today. Did you have any questions for us while you left? <laughs> is there anything we could do better uh, from your point of view? No, or? this is absolutely fantastic and I really, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate um, your support. 
and, and getting the message out. And I'm happy to come back again and tell some more stories about companies who have successfully addressed this and how it's impacted them. Well, we can do Great. that. Pat? Thank you. Thank you, Jill. And uh, like I said, I give out my contact info at the end. So if anyone wants to reach out to Jill, you can do it uh, through me. Just listen at the end of the show. But okay. Jill, thanks for spending the hour. We didn't want to take up too much. And thanks for doing what you do. We appreciate that. Yes. Okay? Thank you. Bye, right. Jill. Thank you. Have a great Take day. care. Bye.